Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> The only thing that matters in life is relationships, and those relationships help your inner self grow. Today, we speak to Bill O'Haran, and next, we speak to his wife. Bill O'Haran is a licensed clinical social worker. He's been married to his exceedingly patient wife, Linda, for 23 years. They have three amazing daughters and two dogs. One, Panda, makes an appearance on the Better Call Daddy show. Bill's career spans 30-plus years in the financial field as a research and sales capital markets executive having worked in New York, London, Stanford, and now Austin. Bill, welcome. I, I was just listening to one of your podcasts. I didn't know you were on the, you started with Jerry Springer. I did. That was my oh first my job out of college. Oh my God. So that was like 0203? I was there in 0203. Wow. Yeah. How'd you get that job? You know what's so funny? So I drove up to Chicago. I worked for an NPR station on campus. Wow. And so I wanted to work in radio and I interviewed at WGN and didn't get the job. And then the same trip, I saw that Jerry Springer was looking for interns. Oh my God. That is amazing. And I ended up landing it starting two weeks later. And that was totally not the plan. Unbelievable. And how long were you there for? I was there a little bit over two years. Wow. What an experience. And I didn't realize at the time like how cool that was. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't matter that Jerry's, you know, everybody's nuts. We're all nuts. But like that is like such a grounding in ad hoc uh, craziness, uh, creativity. That's uh, all happening like spontaneously probably half the time. It was a lesson in babysitting adults. <laughs> Isn't all of life still babysitting adults? I feel like sometimes my kids are babysitting me. Like I've been at the inner work for 25 years and I'm like, have I learned anything from 9,000 hours of meditation and probably 80,000 hours of counseling? 9,000 hours of meditation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just about to broach 9,000. I'm I'm somewhere between 8750. And I mean, I I started March 17th, 1996 and, and I found something in there that was so mind blowing. And like just this morning I sat for 50 minutes, five Oh, like, and pretty much, I would say, Rena, probably 60% of the time, there's some kind of tear in my eye, either about to come up, has come up, or will come up. Crazy. It's totally crazy. Is that like while in full lotus? Just sitting. Yeah. And sometimes just sitting in a chair. But, but yeah, sitting cross-legged uh, 95% of the time, I'm sitting cross-legged with just my eyes closed and just listening to my heart. And it's just like, like. And I'm still waiting for like all the insights to come. I'm waiting for like when I grow up and figure this out, it's going to be awesome. I'm really going to get at my life. <laughs> Has <Long> anything <laughs> profound oh. come to you during that? Beyond, beyond. I mean, the first thing that happened to me, the very first time it happened, March 17th, 1996, I was living in London. I was 31 years old. I was working for a financial firm. I was, you know, living the life of Riley. I was, you know, blah, blah, blah. And my 
girlfriend dropped me like a hot rock. She's like, you're insecure. My inner life was really unhappy. My heart was shrinking, but my outer life was like, hey, I'm from New Jersey. I get shit done. Then another friend of mine, female friend, both females said, you should meditate. You should meditate. I'm like, no way. I'm going to, I'll just white knuckle it. That's how we do it from New Jersey. And I sat that evening on a pillow on the floor and I started, my neck started clenching like I was being hanged. And I'm like, these tears are just flowing out of my face. Like, oh my God, with no content, there was zero content coming out. It was just this body cathartic as I look back. And a part of me is like, hang in, literally hang in there, dude, hang in. And I passed it out. I don't know if it was an hour I was just down, it was 10 minutes, 15. I don't know how long the whole thing. And so I came to in my apartment, third floor, third floor walk up in downtown London, Sloan Square. And I thought somebody was got into my room. I'm like, okay, there's somebody here. And I hear, welcome back. I hear the words, welcome back. And then I was sitting in the middle of what I felt and saw and seen and, and, and sensed was in this circle of Native American women chanting, chanting. And I've heard that chant every single day for the last 25 years. And I haven't stopped searching, haven't stopped searching for what? I don't, I don't freaking know, but I am truly, it changed everything. That, that 45 minute moment changed everything. Have you explored the Native American scene? Everything, everything. Short of being on a reservation, I, I mean, I've been to 46 countries. I took my dad to India. I took my dad to India 11 months later. I have been out to New Mexico and Sedona collectively six times. I've done Vision Quest out there, been to Machu Picchu, been to Nepal. Like, I've been like, I'm going to find it. Right. And as they always say, you know, man, a female human being searches the world and finds himself in his living room. Right. And so it's been a long journey. A long oh my God. Journey. Okay. Talk to me about the vision quest. That's cool. The very first vision quest I had, the woman I was dating, who's now my wife of 24 years, the woman I was dating. I mean, this is crazy. I haven't really like, I've shared it kind of anecdotally, but so this gentleman leads me up into this in outside of Santa Fe. I couldn't eat for a day. Didn't know what was going on. He's like, you can't eat for 24 hours. He leads me up there. He gives me a blanket, says, I'll be back to you in the morning. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. I'm like, I try like going down, uh, blah, 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 blah. I pass out. I pass out. And I had three dreams and all three dreams were premonitory. They want the first dream was my girlfriend at the time. She had this ball of white light coming out her lower back. And I'm sitting in this barn. She opens this door with this vista out into this magical world like Shangri-La. And she's got this cheerleading outfit on. And she's beautiful. I'm like, wow, I'm in the dream. I'm like, wow, she's beautiful. But she's got this light coming out the back of her tailbone. And I wake up. Well, it turns out she was pregnant. I got her pregnant in London at the time. And I was moving to Venezuela at the time. Three weeks later, I was moving to Venezuela. I quit my job travel the world, blah, blah, blah. I mean, and it just goes on and on. And my grandfather, who'd been dead for seven years, was coming back to me in my dreams, asking me to teach him yoga because I just started learning yoga at the age of 32. And it just went on. And like the, the onion just keeps peeling back. So from the outside looking in going, you must have figured out your life. This is great. No, I haven't figured out. I mean, I got three great kids, but like, I'm still, I'm still traveling. I'm still trying to figure out my life. That <laughs> all came up. to you <laughs> through meditation? Yes. It opened the door. Yep. Um, I obviously need to start meditating more. So have you, when, when's the first time you did it? I mean, I think that yoga is like a form of meditation yes, and I love, yep. I, I love yoga. 
Um, it's been a little while because I'm a mom of four and I had. Uh, you're a mom of four? I thought you were like 27. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So I just had my last baby at 39. And you are my freaking, freaking <laughs> hero. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And I had taken a break too. So my first three I had in four years. So they're very like close together. And then, you know, my youngest of those first three is getting ready to be nine. And then I have a two-year-old. So I haven't done yoga over the last couple of years, but prior to my last baby, my husband and I were doing improv at Second City and we were doing CrossFit and I love yoga. And I find that, yeah, it really slows my mind, which is what I need. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. We get into our body. When's your birthday? I just have to ask. I'm sorry. I'm a Libra. My birthday is October 8th. October 8th, beautiful. Libra is such a sweet, my, my middle daughter is a Libra. It's oh, cool. beautiful. And, and I have to say the more a Libra, I know this sounds, mm, you could probably make generalizations about each 12 slices of the pie, but I find the more a Libra goes inside, the more, even more powerful. When the Libra gets to slow down as an air sign to slow down and really go in, because the air signs like, like to be out, right? They like to be Right. But you get that air sign to come down and come into your your little cave, whatever, whatever you want to call that, that quiet, sacred spot of that inner world, that heart. There's so much, you know, Venus ruled Libra is just a beautiful energy, such a sweet energy. That's why the outside world kind of comes easier to you. Libras tend to they tend to flow pretty well. I think my one thing I've been studying this for a long time, 17, 18 years, kind of digging into astrology everything's just relationship right you can, everything's just we're in relationship to everything we're just, just electrons we're just interference patterns right so there is a really powerful some powerful truths potentially within the framework and lens of astrology libra as an air sign ruled by venus i especially mid middle libra like you have this amazing you have that deep sense of beauty and appreciation you don't like schleppy stuff you don't like to waste time you like and the more you sit quietly the bigger all your abilities become. I know that's just like some grandiose statement, but I believe that in my heart. I did recently start reading before bed. Mm, I love that. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because I listened to you on the Friends of Dave podcast that you have on your website and you said that you have like nine books by oh, your God. bed. Totally. Yeah. 12 probably. Yeah. <laughs> but you meditating, I'm telling you as a mom, as a dare I say, visionary and someone who's out in the world a lot, you'd be surprised at how much you'll gather and collect if you just stop either in the morning or night or whenever you get a moment, just take 10, 12 minutes, 15 minutes. Um, They say the human brain gets distracted every three minutes in order to undo the distraction, get back in focus takes 15 minutes. And that's why meditation for 15 minutes, eight minutes is great. 12 minutes is fantastic. 15 minutes plus it's going to drive you crazy in the beginning to get back to that. But I'm telling you, it will change. I hate to say it, but it does. It, it changes everything, especially where you're at right now, 39, 40. Or, I know this sounds crazy. So just you're entering true adulthood. It's not until the, it's not until the sixth, seventh, seventh cycle. When we turn 42, that's like, we think like, oh my God, fantastic. Amazing. I've done all these things in my twenties and thirties, which you have powerful stuff, family, but it's not until we finish that, that 35 to 42 is such a powerful time. And when you turn 42, you begin that next seven year cycle. And I'll send you the research on this. It's really, 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 there's real depth to it is that 
when you turn 42, you're really beginning the, the true adult world because so much more water's under the bridge at, at 42 than it was even at 37. Does that make sense? Like we think we know so much at 37, 38, 39. What I thought I knew at 39 when I was 46, I'm like, wow, I didn't know shit, right? And then I got, I'm 56. And then I got to like my early 50s, like, oh my God, how did I survive my 40s? I was completely and utterly retarded. Now I'm a man. That's totally different. That's not you. Please don't think women are different. Women are much more powerfully connected, much the divine feminine force rules everything on the planet. You know, without women, there's nothing. Men are just flailing in the, in the wind of our own immaturity and imbecility. You want to hear something really interesting? So my husband lived on a mountain in New Mexico for a year and a half in a tent. We are oh totally God. opposites. Like wow. when I was working at Springer, that's what he was doing. He was trying to live on nothing and I was trying to make as much as possible. What a beautiful combo. When's his birthday? So he's February 15th. 15th. Oh, he's Aquarius. Wow. Aquarius is big, big energy, big ruled by Uranus. Like Aquarians are kind of like cut from a different cloth. Kind of like of all the 12 slices of the pie, Aquarians are... A conscious, aware Aquarian is, is one of the great forces of humanity. Abe Lincoln was an Aquarius. And, and you know, I, I guess you can pick and choose, you know, things that work and don't work for any, any thesis, but um, any theory. But an Aquarian that sounds like he's willing to do work, has done work on himself and tries to understand the life and his world and his place in it. That's a gift. That's a fucking gift. Oh, wow. yeah. Good he's, choice. He's a brilliant guy. It's funny, too. So... I was living in LA when we met. I you was working on Nanny 911 and we met on like JDate on a Jewish dating site. And he was, fin he was like in the PhD program at Berkeley. Like that's no how way. different. Yeah. Like that's he didn't amazing. even <laughs> know who like Angelina Jolie was, <laughs> nor did he care. You know what I mean? Like he was, that was completely off his radar. What was his, what was his, his subject radar. matter? His undergrad was in physics. I can't spell physics. <laughs> So the pH or an F anyway, sorry. <laughs> and then he got, well, he was in the PhD program for mechanical engineering. So we met, he was like in his master's and wow. decided that he wanted to get married. And so I was like, okay, cool. We'll get a job, you know? <laughs> wow. But prior to that, he was on a mountain for a year and a half doing his own personal vision questing or searching or seeking. Yep. Yep. So he's done the vision quest stuff too. It's funny because- I've also like interviewed someone who did mushrooms for a year and ayahuasca and, you know, I'm, I'm interested in all of that. I've never done it, but. Yeah. yeah. And how old's your husband? He is 47. 47. Oh, he's 47. Okay. Yeah. And his birth. Okay. So he'll be 48. It's taken me a long time, but age is a truly a freaking illusion, but that's amazing. It sounds like you guys have, that's amazing. It sounds like you guys have done some serious real powerful work on the outside and the inside. And then your, it sounds like your relationship's been, you know, doing work there. That's awesome. You know what else is interesting? So neither one of us grew up like observant Jews. And now we are keeping Shabbos, which is a Beautiful. way of meditation too, totally. because we unplug 100%. from the world every week. I think that's what happens is we rebel against that, which we're given. I'm a, you know, raised a Catholic. Couldn't pay me to walk into a Catholic church. Although sometimes I go by myself just as a place for meditation. And then we enter the world, we enter the world as rebellious, you know, adolescents, or, you know, I still think in our twenties, we are late adolescents. And then we start to, you know, female forms the hearth, right? So the feminine forms the hearth. She invites the man into the hearth, AKA heart. And then we look for structure. We look for 
personal spirituality, and then we look for communal spirituality, which is super important to pass on to our kids. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the fabric of it. It doesn't matter the name of it. You call it whatever, like Jewish, Catholic, like it's what we invest and what we do with communal spirituality. But communal spirituality is what makes mammals. It's what's made us successful as mammals. There's like enzymes and DNA in the homo sapien that building some kind of relationship actually work and, and helped with our survival. And so we're built to relate. We're built to commune. When we look through the label of whatever religion it is, religios, you know, it's just a place for us to communally meditate together. Theoretically, the old churches have a, a biomagnetic power to them, which is just deepening our sense of self, opening our heart up. That's what the whole game is about. Have you been to any of those castles? I have, yes. I lived in London for six years and traveled a lot around there. And it's one of the most stirring places to walk on the planet. And, you know, they say there's five or six or seven major chakras. The Mother Earth has chakras, like we have chakras. And that Stonehenge area is one of the chakras. Northern California is a chakra. Uh, Nepal is a chakra where the Aztecs were. And so, yeah, it's, it's powerful stuff there. What did that teach you about the United States? You just coming right out. You just like, you just, you just throw in there. This is beautiful. You're amazing. A lot. It taught me a lot. It taught me how silly we can be. It taught me how much I deeply appreciated it. It taught me what, what an adolescent, like sociopolitical environment we were. It was during the, it was during the Clinton debacle, you know, with the activity in the white house with um, Monica and we were kind of the laughing stocks. We were the kind of quiet, kind of goofy laughing stocks. And it never dimmed my pride in this amazing, amazing experiment that we call the United States. But it really taught me how the world looks at us and how it's important that everybody should get their asses on a plane and go live somewhere that's not called the United States so that we can truly appreciate what we have here. You can't, it's, you know, distance makes the heart grow fonder in everything we do, in every relationship. And it was phenomenal because when I came back, I truly appreciated everything. I miss the old world though. I miss the old buildings. I miss the relaxed, paced, grounded way of life in the old world where they're not, they don't really, nobody asks you how much you make and what do you do? People don't care. You live in Spain and France or England. Like you go up to Scotland, you go now or North of London, like people don't care what you do. They want to care who you are. They care who you are. What are you doing? What are you up to? You know, you hang out in a pub. You're not there to get hammered. You can get hammered. You're there to like you're there to hang out. You're there to share stories, you know, share your mythology. Yeah, I really, it was fantastic. It was beautiful. Uh, I'd, I'd move back tomorrow if I could. What brought you there? Financial field, but also a very strong yen to get out of. I was, I'm from New Jersey, went to school in Vermont, came back to New Jersey, was working downtown Manhattan, uh, 86, 87, 88, 1989, 1990. By, time, by the time 1990 rolled around, I realized I was living almost the exact same life I was as a fraternity dude in college. My buddies are there drinking beers. I'm like, no, no, no. I got to get out of here. I got to shake things up. I got to go somewhere foreign so I can wake up. You know what I mean? Like, I just felt like I had a job and a good job making good money, but it didn't, it didn't, I wasn't expanding. I wasn't growing. I was just a dude working in the financial field, making money. And like, I wanted to evolve. Yeah. What was that first like? I was so ready to just not be here that it, I was like a kid in the candy shop. Like I was the first one in the office. I was lucky because my job was to talk to U S financial advisors and hedge fund guys, but doing it from a chair in London. 
And every weekend was an adventure. Whether I did anything or not, every weekend was an adventure. Even if I was staying at home, just exercising and hanging out and I don't know, maybe doing something like that. Hopefully, uh, you know, just it was so great because I could just get on a train too and go out to the Cotswolds. I could just go. I just wanted to see the world. I wanted the world to teach me, to show me who I was. What I started to realize when I first meditated in London was, oh my God, this isn't the life I wanted. This is the life that my dad had, that his, his father had, that my uncle had. My uncle was a super, super wealthy financial advisor. But I'm like, I don't think this is the life I came for. I don't, this is it. This can't be it. Within 10 months, I quit my job, moved to Venezuela, got my girlfriend pregnant and started a whole new life at 32. Crazy stuff. And I'm still, still trying to figure it all out, really. Wow. So I want to know, like, as a child, you saw your dad in the financial industry, right? Yeah. Was he happy doing that? So do I answer that from my 56-year-old perspective? Do I answer that from the belly of my fifth grade self? Here's what I'll tell you. The belly of your fifth grade self. The The belly of my fifth grade self said every time dad came home at night, he just walked right past the kitchen table. And I could see it like it was yesterday, last night, past the, he'd get a drink, he'd go, he'd sit by himself in the living room. And just as I think through it and feel into it right now, there was this heaviness. And in the later years, he would say, you know, I didn't really want to be a priest, but I wanted to do something. He never said I didn't want to do that. He said, there's always things I wanted to do. You know, again, he was a storyteller. He's 100% Irish and he enjoyed what it brought. But deep down, it didn't sate his deepest longing. And he's 89. I just spent, I was up there two days ago chatting with him. You know, as Carl Jung says, the unlived life of the parent is the curse on the child. Um, There is that bit of unlivedness. You heard that quote before? Yeah, that is a stinger, right? The unlived life of the parent. Yeah. And I can almost tear up. I mean, I am the crier. So maybe I should change my website to billcries.com. It's kind of what I teach in my my, my counseling and I've done a bunch of, you know, you know, podcasts and I've done some, I guess you would call them lectures to business guys. As I said, you know, our job is to finish this life, leave nothing, leave nothing undone. And there's more than just accumulating wealth. We need to go out and share. We need to help people hold space for people so that they can grow and deepen because you can make, if you have a hundred people in your company and they're financially well off, that's great. But what if you have a hundred people in your company and they're financially well off and you're helping them grow and become and evolve and know oneself better, their knowledge of self and awareness and consciousness resonates to the next five and 10 people they interact with. Their wealth won't resonate. It's their sense of self and their willingness to expand and hold space for somebody else. That's the ripple. That's what my life mission is, is to hold space for somebody else. So they get a little bit more conscious so they can go out and hold space. And they can be aware, and they can cry, and they can cathart. Because again, I can't know you, Rena, unless I know myself. If I don't know my sadness, longing, and joy, how am I going to know your sadness, longing, and joy? And a party, and some people are like, well, you don't have to know. I'm like, well, if I want to develop a relationship with you, we have to ultimately get vulnerable and open ourselves up. And we, if I can do that, and you can do that, then we can help other people do that. And the craziness of the world around us would lessen just a down tick a millimeter. You know, lessen the craziness. What do you think that your father feels is unlived? There's a sadness and longing for doing something more meaningful than just providing for his family. You know, he lost his mom and his dad by the time he was 20. And there was just this, he never had this real relationship with his mom. 
And that longing in him is so palatable to me. I think he's less conscious of it. He's told me 30 times in the last 15 years, he never had more than a one-sentence conversation with his dad. Never. His dad lost everything in the stock market crash in 29 and drank to the point where he used to drive to the senior living home, pick up my grandfather. His grandfather, his father would get in the car. He would drive my grandfather to a pub. This is in Massachusetts. My grandfather would get out, go in the pub, stay in the pub. My dad would stay in the car. My grandfather would come back out. They wouldn't say a word and he would drop him off at the senior home. And he did that for like two years before he never, he never had a relationship with his father. And so I think for a lot of men, you know, we, we have this body and soul in this life as 50 year olds or 40 year olds, but really developmentally, a lot of us never get past 11, 12, 13 years old developmentally. You asked me what my dad's kind of missing or what's unlived is he just doesn't feel whole. I think because of the lack of those, those deep connections with his family and his family of origin and just that there's always a slightly agitated energy, restlessness for wholeness. How has that influenced your parenting style? Wow. Big time. I would just catch myself, you know, like finding a reason not to hang out, right? Not to get emotional, not to be emotionally present. And I'd have to shake myself and just, I mean, I was super active, like taking kids to soccer practice and coaching and all that stuff. But sometimes emotionally, I wasn't there. I can be there physically. But as you know, there's nothing worse than a man or a woman, but a man really who's physically there, but emotionally detached. And I made a massive commitment to just be there, be there with my kids, to be on the ground, to laugh and cry with them. I catch myself being, you know, pontificating, you know, propounding these truths and these, you know, ethos and all this bullshit. They don't want to hear that, especially girls. They don't want to hear that. They just want a dad that's available. All three of my girls are in college. One just graduated last week, two weeks ago. But I'm proud of myself. I write them postcards. I have postcards and I just, two, and my daughter's down in Austin. She's only 10 miles and I write her postcard. Hey, this is another dumb postcard from dad. I just want to tell you how proud I am, blah, blah, blah. Just trying to be real and open and vulnerable. That's really sweet. I'm sure she loves that. Yeah, they do. And also what I learned is worrying about our kids is nothing but deleterious. It's not additive. It's like, it adds nothing to their life. When I was a kid that when my parents were worried, I, a part of me thought like, well, there must be something in me worth worrying about. So there must be something in me that's kind of less than or not whole if they're always worried about me. And it wasn't until I got older and older that I realized, oh, they were just worrying because that's their way of loving. That's their way of paying attention. That's their way of being present. I think at times I've caught myself being really laissez-faire with my kids at times but it wasn't like this incredible focus on where they were and what they were doing and how I could be additive. I just didn't want to be that negative force to the point sometimes with one of my, my daughters, you know, she, you know, kids can get in that negative spin or girls can get in the feminine can get into that negative spin and just kind of complaining about stuff. I just back away. I stopped engaging. And I read this piece of research when I went to, when I went back to the master's in social work back in 02. And it said, if you want to get your kids attention, if you really want your kids to engage, pull back. Just pull back. They'll come around. Oh, they'll come around, right? Like, oh, I'm not making dinner. Oh, no, where's mom? Ah, I'm busy, right? They'll, they will come around. And you do that with really everything, you know, whether it's a prospect, you know, a new prospect in sales, whatever it is. Yes, you have to put it in. 
And if you get their attention, the more you put in it, sometimes it's like pushing on a string. It doesn't work. And especially with kids, it just doesn't work. And so I pull back, pull back. And that's been really, really effective. So I really learned from my parents, especially my dad. He's such a loving being, but he, it was really tough for him to be present emotionally because he just hadn't reconciled all that longing and sadness inside. Yeah. In fact, there was one very, very, very poignant moment before I actually meditated. We're sitting in the park. I was living in London. I flew home. He's like, what are you doing home? I'm like, I don't know, dad. I'm just not happy. I'm just not happy. So we went to the park. We sat on the picnic bench. I said, I'd love to learn more about my, my family, your family. He's like, I don't really know anything about my family. He's like, I never had conversations with my dad. He's like, if I can do anything to help. And I just remember he was so honest. And it was like, just a friend of mine said, at that point, Bill, it seems like your dad was giving you permission to kind of go in. Right. Like I said, dad, I, 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 I don't know what it is, but I think I'm starting this kind of journey. He's like, well, whatever I can do to help. There was no judgment, no criticism. It was just like basically him saying, I didn't do it, but I'm happy if you want to learn more. And I felt like I'd write about this in the book. It felt like this drawbridge coming down where he gave me permission to re-enter this, the world of my ancestors, which at that point hadn't really started bubbling up, but boy, did it start bubbling up when I started meditating. He just really, he's respected the work. It scared him, the work I started doing in terms of the questions I was asking and all these deep emotions that were coming up and it spooked him a lot. Do you think it required you doing all of that work to be able to have that conversation? I think so, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Having done this work, I can put words to and express and be willing to share stuff that I just was always on the inside. I could never get on the outside. If, if a man's willing to be vulnerable, if a man's willing to share that boyish feelings and thoughts and insights that he's held in since, you know, fifth grade, that's when the world shifts. That's when that's, that's for me where maturity begins. Like how do you teach your daughters to find a guy who can communicate like that? Well, I've always said with great jest and humor, satirically, never marry a man who's under age 30 and never marry a man who hasn't had his heart broken. Oh, and by the way, if you're going to get into a relationship, what's the man's relationship to mommy, to his mommy, right? So those are three super important criteria for me. And I say it in jest, but it's, I think words are useless. I think so. We know from zero to 10 years old, when we read the research, it's zero to 10, 80% of what kids pick up at home is nonverbal. It has nothing to do with what mommy and daddy are saying. It's what that mom, what's what daddy feels about mom. It's how does daddy feel about women? You know, I came out into the adult world really angry at women. Why? I had no reason in my life to be angry at the feminine force. My mom browbeat my dad every single day for my entire childhood. She still browbeats him. I was just up there in Jersey two, two days ago. And I'm like, oh, the browbeating just continues. So I was frustrated at when the feminine gets dismissive of the masculine, I would get super my wife in the early years would say something to me. She's like, why are you so mad? I'm like, I don't know. I don't fucking know. And then I started realizing, oh, that's my mom's stuff. So for my girls, I just try to model honesty and vulnerability. You know, they know I'm the crier. My wife's not the crier. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the weepy one, you know? I think it's just imbued. I think they just pick it up. I mean, I don't, it's a great question. I don't know. I know that words don't really, really matter. I think they help, but it's all the biomagnetic action of the parents. 
And I said early on to my wife, dragging her into therapy, two years into marriage, we're 24 years in now. I'm a therapist. We've been through six therapists. We're looking for, I'm probably looking for another one as we speak. I said, we have to own our stuff. And I own 50% of the relationship and you own 50% of the relationship. If we're not, if we're not taking ownership of our piece, it's not going to work. And I said, everything we do, the kids are going to pick up. The name of my book originally is going to be called The Space In Between because our hearts are magnets. Our hearts are literally biomagnetically absorbing our parents' world. Our belly, when kids from zero to 18 months old, kids' skin is thinner than a human, than adult skin. In other words, they are, it's osmosis. We are picking up vibration in our parents' world. And I said, you picked up your parents' world. I picked up my parents' world. Look at your parents' relationship. Sucked. Look at my parents' relationship. Sucked. So we, we, we have suck as our template. Poor modeling, dismissiveness, bad relationship. So if we follow this trail, it's not going to end well for our kids. We only had, we had one and one on the way at the time. I said, this isn't going to work. We are doomed. We're going to be a 50 percenter. And she's like, no, no, we'll figure it out. I'm like, no, 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 no. We are going to therapy and we're going to emote and we're going to share and we're going to cathart. And we did. And she used to hate it because she used to get, it used to kick up all this old anger. But the anger was older than me. It was anger towards her dad and stuff would start coming out. And it was crazy. I could give you anecdote, two or three anecdotes where something would happen. She'd get unbelievably mad at me. And I realized she threw a plate at my head. Thank God I ducked. And she, I said, we got to go to therapy. And we went to therapy two weeks later. And she, in the therapeutic session, she had her eyes closed. She started getting relaxed and she started yelling at her dad. And she's like, oh my God, when dad was, when I was eight year old, dad used to come to the dinner table drunk. And I, you know, I didn't drink, a, but at the dinner table, I was upbraiding my girls. I was like, you know, saying, you know, sit up, don't chew with your mouth full, bubble, chew with your mouth closed. And I had triggered, I represented her father. And that was the beginning of my whole kind of trek, my seeking of, oh my God, all this energy of the, of the adult was formed from zero to 12. Our whole reactionary body, our whole limbic body, our whole emotional self is basically built by the time we're 11 years old. And then it gets quiet because our rational mind shows up and carries us into our late twenties. Do you feel like you made changes from the time that they were small through like 13 years? Cause you said you were going to therapy and working on your relationship. But another thing is too, is your, your parents stayed together through the suck. They did. Yeah, <laughs> they did. Cause yeah, now they want to be alone, but you're right. Great question. Did I evolve big time between let's say my oldest was three to the time she was 13, those 10 years. So yeah, from 2000 to 2010. Oh my God. Yes. It was intense. I mean, you know, marriage is brutal, brutal in the sense that it wakes you up and you either embrace it and stand in the fire or you run from it and you know, it stays sucky. That seems to be the day, word of the day. Yeah, a lot changed. It's really me understanding myself in the face of my wife's needs. I thought I kind of knew my wife's needs, but I don't think I listened well enough, even though here I was like, you know, as a therapist, you know, I ran a juvenile justice program. Like I was out in the world doing my thing and really, you know, helping the world. Let's say I was still, you know, back in financial sales, but like, I felt like I was really aware, but at times I realized I wasn't paying enough attention to my wife. I wasn't slowing down. Right. And that's the ultimate. I just had this conversation last night with a client. It's the ultimate for the masculine is yeah. You can be big and bold and, and super powerful in the outside world, but if you're not present with the feminine in your life, everything else is BS. I'm wondering too, if your dad would feel more meaning from working on his relationship with your mom, like he could still ah, do that. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. He, my mom, they refuse. He doesn't want to, they 
Yeah, that's a great, I wish. My mom was never happy with my dad. She told me this in July, 97. So I was just about to get married. We got married in August, 97. And she said, uh, well, I just got to tell you, I never loved your dad. When I walked down the aisle for my wedding, I knew he wasn't the man for me. And so my react, you know what my reaction was? Is this. She's like, why aren't you surprised? I'm like, because you've been miserable our whole life. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah. It, I would say that it's got to be hard to go from like managing <gasps> 300, $400 million accounts to working with inner city kids, right? It was more fun doing the latter. <laughs> but it was less fun when I was counting my beans at the end of the month. So that was the, that was the divide I was living. And so I had to find the balance. I had to figure out how to find the balance. But yes, it was hard because I loved the challenge and I turned the challenge inward, which was awesome. But then I turned the, then I took that challenge inward and working with, you know, let's say modestly functioning, you know, I was in the system. My, my client was juvenile court and I was working with these kids and I had a staff of six and they were great human beings, but they didn't vibrate at the level I wanted to vibrate at. Right. It just, it was slow moving and there was a lot of lethargy in the adults in the, in the, in the service field, in the nonprofit world, like the, the jaded court workers and the jaded teachers and the jaded, you know, vice principals that I'd go in and try to advocate for my, for my, you know, black and Hispanic boys that I was working with. And it was like running into a wall. I'm like, okay, I can't do this. Longer term, I got to find a way to do this work and do it in a way that works and fits for me a little bit more high energy. So I spent three years doing that. And at the end, I was totally burned out. And I can see how people get burned out because you put all this intention and energy and focus and you're like literally just hitting a brick wall. Whereas if you do that in the financial field, you know, you find a ripple and boom, things show up and you can, you can manifest powerfully. So I missed the manifestation of something bigger than myself. And that's why I, why I went back in the financial field because I wanted to make more money. So I've been serving both needs. I have, I do the counseling work, but I also am in the financial field, raising money. I've been doing that for, you know, 10 years, which I really enjoy because I enjoy the relationship part and I love the challenge, right? Start from nothing. We're launching another fund next month. And, but I think full-time I'd much rather be just doing this and teaching. Um, I'm working on a, what's called the intuition project, which is a, which is a course and not just a, you know, not just an online course. We're going to, we're going to put and bring this to colleges. We're going to bring this to, we're going to try to bring this to the highest level. It's called the history of being human, history of being history of human consciousness of just, I've got all the data, all the research I've been doing for 20 years, 18 years, which the, was the culmination of the book, but, but it's a combination of not only the didactic and, and learning, you know, what culture has been doing for the last hundred thousand years to become more conscious, putting it to work, and applying it in one's daily life. Tell me about putting together the book. It took me 11 years and I'm an English major. Talk about a journey. So I did all this research. I used to literally, I'd go to Columbia in Manhattan and I would spend literally nights until they closed the library in the basement studying the physiology and the science of meditation and yoga. Why? Because I wanted to go out into the world and say to Mr. and Mrs., you know, high functioning, hey, you should meditate and do yoga. And they're going to say, why? I'm like, here's the science. So I started gathering all this information and I graduate and I start working in the field. And I'm starting to like realize like there is a need for, I wanted to tell my story of, you know, coming to the suburbia in the late nineties, early twenties, like as a financial guy, a real left brainer, and then having this big right brain opening. 
and I call it, you know, this, we, you know, the suburban melees that there was this kind of energy in the suburbia and just in the world where like people are kind of disconnected to their mythology, to their story, you know, who they are and all this, you know, longing and how, to, how, to, what's the modern way to have a shamanic experience. It's drinking and smoking and having sex and exercising. All these things are our way of avoiding, if you will, full consciousness, full awareness. And so I just wanted to take my story and I, you know, I, I kind of fictionalize it and non-fictionalize it in terms of like other people's names. I, I want, but I wanted to have research. So I quote 67 different sources in a 70,000 word book, 67 different sources, because I didn't want to share my thoughts necessarily. I wanted to share what I learned from all this research and all these, at that point, you know, 7,500 hours of sitting quietly, hours and hours. So not only sitting quietly, applying myself in my relationship to my wife. It's called waking up marriage, finding truth in your partnerships, but it's not about marriage. It's about every relationship we're in just wakes up more of me. Every relationship with my boss, my neighbor, my kids, it's just wait, it's just kicking up more of Bill. It's all it is, is kicking up my sensibility, my longing, my sadness, my insecurity, my fear, my joy. And that's all it is. And I either embrace it and do the work and go, oh, there's the insecurity. Oh, there it is right there. And then you know, Relat is carrying it back. And so I was counseling people, meditating, researching every night, trying to be a good husband and human being in my relationship. And I was, I'm like, well, I'll just put this all together and I'll figure out a way to tell the story to get people to wake up. What yeah. else are you kicking up? The Intuition Project. We're going to have that, I'd say in the next 190 days, next 90 days, we're going to have an outline for that course where the course is mandatory meditation. Like you have to sit for 15 minutes every single day. You're not going to pass this class. We're going to do kind of before and after stuff. We really want to be able to get a physical, literally having folks get a physical before they take the class. And 12 weeks later, where is their heart rate? Where is their blood pressure? Where is their sense of self? Like we really want to do this is all the kind of scientific stuff that we studied back at school was this kind of process of what raising one's consciousness is. So the Hindus say the only, why do we come back? Why do we come back as humans? Consciousness, awareness, bliss. Consciousness, awareness, bliss. They sound like kind of big new agey words, but the reason we come back is to become aware of who we are, become aware of our non-physical self, our emotions, become aware of our emotions, and then put those emotions into the world. That's all the creative act is, is you have these desires, these in, you know, you're impelled, compelled to do stuff. You have this, these emotions, no human, nothing in humanity has ever been done that wasn't propelled by an emotion. Everything is emotion. The universe is emotion-based. Our thought-based world was built upon our limbic world, right? We're here to complete our life, you know? We are here to complete it. What does that mean? To take everything that lives in our non-physical body, everything that lives inside of me, joy, sadness, longing, everything in between, all that, and put it to the material world, from the non-physical to the physical. That's the act of being human. Well, a lot of us don't spend a lot of time understanding what is living in our non-physical, so we can't finish our life fully because we don't know what we're actually bringing. Our rational mind is not the place to do it. We have to teach our rational mind what it is we desire, what we do long for. We have to teach the rational adult self the child heart desires. I mean, I could tell you two or three anecdotes and dreams that I had. My, my, my 14-year-old when I was 38, my 14-year-old was suicidal inside my dream set. And he's like, this isn't the life I wanted. This is not the life I wanted. Literally, I'm in the dreamscape talking to my 14-year-old. He said two things. I want to dance and I want to, do, I want to teach. I want to do something meaningful. I'm 37 years old. I'm like, fuck, is it too late? 
Well, that next day I went online and I looked for classes in social work and that set me off. It was my inner 14 year old that changed my life, Re you know, reoriented the energy inside of me. And that's when I realized it's the inner child work that sets the tempo of the entire adult life. I love that you acted on it because like, a lot of people don't. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? Wow. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? Yes. What does he love most about you? That's a good one. Are you going to answer? Yeah, I do. I would say doing this podcast with him has strengthened our relationship. He's given me so much good feedback on it. Like he's even given me like suggestions of guests or topics or things that we haven't covered. And it, it's been like an amazing collaboration. He sounds like an amazing person. <laughs> You're amazing. You had, I mean, you just came in with a question. I'm like, wow, did this start? <laughs> I know, right? I like it to be very conversational. I just hit record from the beginning. You're good. You're good. Thank you're, you. You're a gift. I'm not being corny. Like, yeah, you're high octane. Let people know how they can connect with you, buy your book, find you, all that good stuff. Oh, yeah, there's that. Um, wholecounseling.com is my website. So instead of Whole Foods, it's Whole Counseling. And all the information is there. You can buy the book through there or Amazon. And the book's called Waking Up Marriage, Finding Truth in Your Partnership. Again, it's not about marriage. It's just about in every interaction, literally every interaction, there's an opportunity to find those, those responsive, reactive emotions that drive our behavior, that drive our actions. And that's really what it's all about is take, those, take what's being kicked up in you, work on them, meditate, therapy, go inside, find the little kid, find that inner child and carry back that vulnerability and in, in a, in a wiser sense of self, a deeper emotional self. That's the game. I think I'm going to ask my dad about who he was at 14 and what he desired. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Have a great Thank night. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. Well, it's very interesting because the fact is, is that he has a lot of perseverance and trying to also add to his wisdom rating. We've talked about this between you and me a few times, but in order to achieve this expansion of your mind, you have to work on your mind. You actually have to be able to have an inner conversation with yourself. And really isn't also when you are searching out your mind and how it functions, you also trying to also measure how other people think as well, and how the mind works like a, a, a brain of a whole system. And in order for it to be effective, you have to really have relationships and experience with many, many, many different people. And it's then adding to your computer and your brain. And if you don't keep feeding your brain with experiences, with information, can it continue to develop or grow? Or does it just stay idle and stay the same? So if you want your brain to mature and you want yourself to mature, you have to keep feeding it information. I thought that's a very interesting perspective that he came up with, or my interpretation of it anyway. Yes, he's done quite a lot of exploring abroad and career-wise and well, internally. The other thing that I like is that it's almost like the Wizard of Oz story. You don't realize how the grass is greener in your own backyard until you go on an adventure 
and you see how the rest of the world lives. And there's so many people that have come here from Russia or from South America or from Europe or Asia, and they come to this country to fulfill their dreams, and they can't believe how some of these people act and also how our government, or at least a lot of the liberal Democrats that are leaning more towards socialism, and all these people from around the world wanted to escape socialism and come to the freedom of this country and where you could have the American dream. The, the funny part is, is that there's a lot of people that live in this country don't realize how wonderful and the accomplishments that this country has given to its citizens and to its people and to people from all around the world to have opportunity here. And they don't get it. <laughs> and maybe by living or visiting other places in the world, they could maybe also wake up and say, hey, you know, it's good to travel. It's good to learn what goes on in the world. But I am so thankful of what my country stands for. He asked what you love most about me. The fact is, is that, as we stated in one of the previous shows, is that you have a yearning to grow, to have your own individual uh, accomplishments, but you also want to be able to share yourself and build relationships, just as Bill wants to as well, is that the way to really achieve and to have the ultimate accomplishment in your life is you have to be able to branch out and to be able to explore and to be able to be part of everybody's story. Then it becomes your story. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Danny Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 